Think again, praise team. We have a God worth praising. Amen? Amen. Well, we start a new series today. How many of you are excited for that? So, yeah, I'm excited about that. We're looking, I'm looking forward to the book of Daniel. Uh, just a fantastic book in, in many ways. Let me ask you this. How many of you have ever been punished because you were part of a group that has done something wrong, but you were personally not responsible. You didn't do anything wrong. How many of you have ever been in that situation, right? I mean, when you go back, you can go all the way back to elementary school, and that happens all the time, right? You know, uh, where a teacher leaves, all the kids are misbehaving, but you have a few kids that are behaving and doing what they're supposed to do. The teacher comes back, and the whole group has to put their heads on, on, the, on the desk, right? The whole class. And, I, and it's one thing when a teacher asks you to put your head down on the desk, you know, which I hated as a kid. I just hated that. You know, I would have rather received a spanking, just to be honest. And, and yet, the, when you are innocent and you are suffering because of those around you, then it's a whole new level of, of evil, right? You know, you hate that. And uh, how many of you have felt that way before? Maybe even as adults. Uh, maybe your, your department in your, in your workplace uh, uh, failed to meet the, your quarterly quota, not because of you, but because of others, or some people not doing their work, or they're slacking off, and the whole department pays for it. Or, and, and, you know, there's, there's times in our life when we feel that way. I'd have to say, in general, just us as Christians. Uh, you know, how many of you are proud to call yourself a Christian? That's all of us, amen? Okay, someone's really proud back there, so very good. Yeah, we're proud to call ourselves a Christian, right? At the same time, how many of you have ever come across a situation where maybe it was a little difficult to say because there are some wackos out there, if I can use that word, it's a theological term, and, and there are wackos out there who come up with some of the craziest things, and when people hear the word Christian, they think of them instead of what this is all about, Amen. And also, it's where we're receiving the punishment, in a sense, even culturally speaking, for something that we haven't done because of other people. Daniel definitely felt that way. I mean, how do you feel when you're in that situation? You feel violated. You feel cheated. And Daniel was in that type of a situation where he was being punished along with all of the people of Israel. Among all the Jews, he was being punished for something that he really wasn't guilty of. In fact, if anyone had a right to be bitter, it was Daniel, wasn't it? Had a right to be bitter. I mean, Daniel is a story of a young man who was taken out of his home, taken out of his, his home country, taken out of his culture, and, and forced to live in a godless nation. And a nation where the leaders looked at the Hebrew God as just a weak God who was conquered, because that was the mentality of the thinking back then. If our nation defeats your nation, it meant our gods are stronger than your gods. And so when, when the, the people of Babylon took over, uh, they felt like, well, then the Hebrew God is just a weak God, and we have already defeated him. How little they knew, right? How little they understood. But poor Daniel carried off... Uh, and so we, we have, we're forced to ask this question, really. How is, how is a God-fearing person supposed to respond when they're in a godless culture, right? How is a God-fearing person supposed to respond when they're in a, a, a godless culture? The book of Daniel is going to answer that question for us, which is why I've titled this series uh, of, of Daniel, Faith in the Fire. They're talking about faith in the fire. See, Daniel is an example of a man who continued to have his faith 
even though he was put into the proverbial fire. He was put right into the center of, of a godless nation, right? And yet, and in fact, some of his friends literally had to put their faith through the fire. And we'll get to that in the book of Daniel as well. But all, all throughout the book, especially the, the first six chapters, we see, we see obstacle after obstacle after obstacle because we had men of faith, God-fearing men, young men, trying to live in a godless culture. And so that's the, that's the situation we have with Daniel here. And so it's, it's faith in the fire. Daniel is an interesting book, without a doubt. It's a controversial book. We'll talk a little bit about that in a bit. It's, and it's an exciting book. It's got stories of lions and the dens and fiery furnaces and teens uh, rebelling against their authority. Maybe rebelling isn't the best word to use in this context, but we have these, these great stories. But it's also a book that's full of prophecies, very fantastic visions. And when I say the word fantastic, I don't just mean great. I mean fantasy-like visions of creatures that you can't even describe. And, and, I, and we read the descriptions of these creatures, and I can't wrap my mind around it. Anyone else ever feel that way when you read some of the visions of Daniel? I mean, what an incredible, it's a very interesting book. But it's also the story about an, a, a few people, um, a righteous few, who are living in this godless culture in a foreign and wicked land called Babylon, where the kings did not regard God as anyone to, to worry about. They had their own gods, and they were concerned more about their own gods. They thought that they had defeated the god of Israel, but God, we'll find out, was not defeated. God was not defeated. In fact, everything that was happening to the Jews happened exactly according to what God himself had predicted. And we'll see this in, uh, as we study the book. I want to answer the question first. Is today I want to kind of lay the foundation so that we can understand the book a little bit. We'll talk a little bit about the historical background and literary background. I want to answer the question, why is it considered such a controversial book? And it boils down to this, that if you take a little timeline and, and we say that Daniel is, it claims to have been written at this point in, in time, uh, there are a lot of people who, uh, who would claim that, that Daniel was actually written at a much later date. And so uh, if you can imagine this, if Daniel claims to be written at one point, they say that actually four or five, between five and six hundred years later, they believe that someone else claiming to be Daniel wrote his own version of what's going on um, and, and kind of retelling history with his own imagination. Uh, you, you see the problem with that? You know, the moment you start believing that, then all of a sudden, what happens to the credibility of the entire book? The, the entire book is called into question, and, and, uh, and the, the credibility of the book is, is not there. Um, in fact, I would think of it as, as uh, take an example of a, a, a biography of the life of Abraham Lincoln, written by Henry Ketchum. It's, it's, it goes back to the original sources, and it, and it seeks to, uh, to look for all of the actual things that the, the, the letters of correspondence to, 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 to put together the entire story of, of Abraham's life versus, say, something that was written several hundred years later, um, take, like, Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. One of these two has less credibility than the other, right? Now, which one is it? 
Yeah, obviously the, the, the new one, the vampire. Why? Because when time goes on, people add their own imaginations to go back to, to, and, and retell what's going on in history, and there's really no credibility to that, right? If you're allowed to reinvent history, then whatever you say is not really worth the ink and the paper that it's written on, right? And, and so if we were to say that, well, Daniel was actually not written by Daniel, but by someone four or five hundred years later, that destroys the credibility of the book. Does that make sense? And so that's why it's considered controversial. However, there are a couple things that help us understand the literary context of this book. There's a couple problems with this, this um, uh, argument. Well, for, and let me build the argument on why they claim it was, uh, was so late to begin with. The idea is that in the book of Daniel, he has several predictions about what was going to happen in the future. Right? Now, when Daniel makes these predictions, these, this is not like Nostradamus type predictions where he says something very vague that you can interpret multiple events to be that. You know what I'm talking about? You know, say something big is going to happen somewhere in this hundred year period of time. And then when something happens, see, wow, it's nothing like that. Daniel makes predictions, and as we'll see, as we'll get into it in, in, the, in the weeks ahead, Daniel makes some of these predictions that are very specific and very detailed. And so he makes all of these predictions about what's going to happen, about different kingdoms that are going to come up, and what order they're going to come up, and, and you know, how rulers are going to be divided. And you know, it's, he goes into detail about the next four or five hundred years of history. The argument is, is uh, that as you look at time, and as time passed forward, you, you, you move forward, and you realize that all of the events that Daniel predicted would happen, guess what? They happened. Now, here's the argument. People can't guess that good. Therefore, the writer of Daniel had to write it after the facts. And, and, and you look back at all the facts, there's no way he could have predicted all of these things with a degree of certainty. That's one thing that every... Every critic of the scriptures will agree on. They'll say there is no way that a human being could have guessed that well all of those events. But in their conclusion, that must mean he must have written it after the fact. So it had to be someone who wrote it after the fact. Do, do, you, see where I'm, do you see where I'm headed with this? This is the thinking um, of the critic of the scriptures. However, when you look at the evidence... Uh, there are three types of evidence that show something, and I want us to see this. First, we have what we call linguistic evidence. Uh, linguistic evidence. But see, phraseology changes over time, does it not? The, just the, the, the common expressions that we use change over time. In fact, if you were to uh, take in English, for example, if you were to go back for 400 years or so, 400 years, in fact, uh, what was written in 1611? The 1611 King James Bible, right? Uh, so if you were to go back for it, when you read the 1611 King James Bible, what does it sound like to you? Now, by the way, if your Bible, if you have a Bible with you today that says 1611, that's actually a 1759, right? It, it's very hard to get a, whole, a, co- a copy of the actual 1611. You read it, and, and for a minute you wonder, is this English? Right? Why? Because language changes over time. The phraseology that we use changes over time. For us today, if you were to go to a rodeo, you might say something like, wow, look at these bow-legged cowboys, right? 400 years ago, you might have seen the same thing, and you would say, behold what manner of men are these that wear their legs in parentheses. (laughs) It's just a different way of speaking, 
right? Things change over time. So you would think when you go back, when a person says, I'm going to go back and I'm going to write about a different era of history, what happens? You take some of the phraseology of today and you slip it in and it gives away that your book was a later book instead of an early book. Does that make sense? What you find in the book of Daniel is that there are zero examples of that. Not one. You can go back to papyrus that are dated into the same time period, and there's not one phraseology difference between the two. You can go to the book of Ezra, which no one, no one argues the date of the book of Ezra. Same phraseology. And so you, you find that the, the literary evidence suggests overwhelmingly that this book was written when it claimed to have been written. Does that make sense? Not only that, we have uh, the historical evidence. Historical evidence, uh, Daniel accurately describes the, the historical context in which the book was written. Even in ways that we did not understand until recent times were correct. You see, if he had written it here, he would write from the understanding that we had from here about what happened there. But there was information that was lost between there and here that we didn't realize until, until modern times. So I'll give an example. In the book of Daniel, he claims that, uh, uh, that Belshazzar was a co-regent with another king. Two kings ruling together, Nabonidus. Did you know that for many years, we had no historical evidence of this other king? It wasn't until recent times that we found, oh, you know what? Back then, Belshazzar was a co-regent with Nabonidus. We didn't know that except for through the scriptures. So how would he have guessed something that he didn't know about? Does that make sense? So from the historical context, he gave information that only a person who was there would have understood. And then the nail in the coffin for this theory is the manuscript evidence. You know, the, the manuscript evidence. This is where it's very important a discovery that was made not that long ago in the, the grand scheme of things. A young boy near the Dead Sea, throwing rocks in the caves. He hears some jars break, and he finds the caves in a place called Qumran. Anyone familiar with, with, this, with this? The Dead Sea Scrolls. And there they find writings that are written on papyrus and written on other things that are carbon-based. You can carbon date them. And one of the things he finds there is what? The book of Daniel. Carbon dated before the time that the critics are claiming that the book was written. This is hard science here, folks, right? And there it is. And black, this one, I had to see for myself. I, I, about 21 years ago, uh, I had the opportunity to go over there and see this and look at this with my own two eyes. This is real. Does that make sense? This is real. There is no way you can look at the scientific evidence and say that the book of Daniel was written after the fact. Now you go back to the context of the argument and say, wait a minute, Daniel made predictions that no one, I mean, everyone would say, could not have been made by humans. Humans don't get that lucky. Daniel made all these predictions and they happened exactly as he said it. What does that tell us about Daniel? He had access to the author of human history. Wow. I mean... It's one thing to say that every religion can make those kinds of claims. Only one can be backed up. And Daniel makes this claim. 
Uh, sometime when I get a chance to tell my whole personal testimony, Daniel is the, it was the nail in the coffin in, 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 uh, in my search, reading the book of Daniel and coming to the conclusion that, wow, he, he actually wrote these things long before they happened. And I came to the conclusion that the Bible has authority because it comes from something beyond human beings. And, uh, and so what a, an incredible, this is real. This is real. We've got to realize that. Now, we're going to read some things in the book of Daniel that seem very fantastic in that fantasy-like sense. Wow, how can he make some of these claims? And how can he talk? It's going to be a little wild. It's going to be a little crazy. I'm warning you, right? Some of it, when you, especially when you get to the visions. But when you look at the facts, the hard evidence of it, I want you to remember that Daniel made all of these predictions long before these events took place, and they took place exactly as he said. Isn't that cool? When you, when you think of this, it, it shows that this is coming from someone beyond the human being. This is coming from God. This is historically accurate. Well, now that we know that, the, the, uh, that this book is historically accurate, let's take a look at the, the, literary, or the historical uh, context in which, in which the book is found. So we now know that the uh, book was written when it's claimed to be. But in order to understand the historical context, we actually have to understand the, the context of the entire Old Testament. So, I'm going to fly through, through this in a second, but I'm going to bring out the parts for us to understand exactly what's going on in the book of Daniel. So to do that, I want to go all the way back to Abraham and what we call the patriarchal era. He was the first of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And God made a special promise to Abraham. Do you remember what it was? Genesis 12, all the way back to the first book of the Bible. He made this promise that he was going to make a nation out of him. And that this nation was going to, to bless all other families of the earth, through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. Somehow through this nation of Abraham, who, by the way, was too old to have children, had a wife too old to have children, and she had been barren even when she was uh, young enough to have children. And so uh, we have that, this context. And so there's a struggle for, through the next few generations to actually try and populate this family. And there's a, there's a struggle that goes on. And, uh, uh, and you might remember then that God really, really multiplied the family under the bondage of slavery in Egypt. Remember that? So, so God has made this promise. He's, he's fulfilling this promise that he's growing them. And they grew to the part uh, so, so much that the Egyptians were afraid of them. And so they put them under bondage and they tried to decrease their numbers and nothing worked. You might remember the story as we went through this. Then you'll remember that, that they crossed the Red Sea and God swallows up the Egyptian army. And, and uh, by the way, this is, this is helpful for understanding the book of Daniel because in the book of, of Exodus, they were under bondage to an evil empire. But it wasn't because the evil empire was stronger than their God. It was because God was allowing it to happen. And in fact, when God chose to show his strength, he really did it in an awesome way, did he not? And so he swallows up the Egyptian army. He, he makes fun of their gods with plagues. I mean, God left Egypt a, a mess on purpose because of what they had done. They go out into the wilderness, and we have another era, the, this wilderness era, led by a, a man named Moses. And it was in the desert where, where God gave them... A, a, an opportunity to respond and to join into a covenant relationship with himself. And so Moses brings down the Ten Commandments, right? He's got these, these Ten Commandments, 
And God basically says, if you are willing to follow these Ten Commandments, I will be your God. And you will be my people. And we're going to have this special relationship between God and this people of the, of, the, of the Jews. And they said, yes, Lord, we want to. And Moses gives the Ten Commandments. Then he gives what's called the Book of the Law, which is an explanation of each of the Ten Commandments. Uh, each of the Ten Commandments are kind of like bullet points of the law. But there's, a, there's an exposition of every single one of those in the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, walks through and explains what each of those means. And then you get to Deuteronomy 28. And they're given this opportunity, and they're, they're given the terms of the covenant. If, if you could turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 28. I'm going to read, uh, starting in verse 1. Deuteronomy, it's the fifth book of the Bible, so towards the beginning. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Chapter 28. And he gets all of Israel together, and they lay out what they call the blessings and the curses. The blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience. Let me start in verse 1. And this is what we read. Now it came to pass, it, uh, if, or now it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth. And all the blessings, excuse me, and all the blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. Because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. So he's getting ready to give this list of blessings. And he's saying, if you obey me, here's your blessings. This is what you get. Verse 3. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body, the produce of your ground, and the increase of your herds, the increase of your cattle, and the offspring of your flocks. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before your face. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your storehouses and in all to which you set your hand, and he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself, just as he has sworn to you, if you keep his commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways, then all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. So he lays out these blessings. And in a nutshell, he says, obedience brings blessing. And here are the blessings that you're going to receive. Now, one of those I want to highlight because it really affects how we understand the book of Daniel. Did you notice what he said? That if they obey uh, in verse 7, it says, The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before your face. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. You get this image of they come at you thinking, oh, we've got you, and all of a sudden they're fleeing every which direction they can go, right? That, is a, that was a promise of God, but it was conditional. You caught the if in there, right? If what? If they follow the ways of the Lord. If they obey the commandments that God has given to them. If. This is conditional, right? Flip side. Not only does obedience bring blessing, but disobedience brings curses. Let's skip ahead to verse 15 as we, as we look at verse 15 through 20. We read this. But it shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. 
Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body and the produce of your land, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flocks. Cursed shall you be when you go out, or when you come in. Cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you cursing, confusion, and rebuke in all that you, that you set your hand to, to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly because of the wickedness of your doings in which you have forsaken me. Let's skip ahead just to verse uh, 25. Look what it says in verse 25. I want to highlight this one. He says this, the, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them, and you shall become troublesome to all the kingdoms of the earth. You see what it's getting at here? If you obey, then your enemies are going to scatter. When they attack you, they're going to think they've got you, but God's going to come to your aid, and they're going to scatter. But if you disobey God, if you reject God, if you, put, if you put God out of the equation and you try to continue your country without God, what's going to happen? Your enemies are going to come in, and God's going to let them destroy you. You are going to be the ones scattering in seven different directions. Now, see, this is important because... Remember, the Babylonian kings think that they're more powerful than God, right? They think that, they're more, that, that they can, they've already defeated Yahweh. They've already defeated the God of the Israelites. No. They're pawns of Yahweh. That's it. Nothing more. They're pawns of the Lord. And here we see this concept in, in the blessings and curses. That obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings curses. Then as we follow out the rest of, of, of history, we see that in play. Remember what comes after the book of Deuteronomy? We studied it here not too long ago. The book of, of Joshua. And, and so we, when we saw the book of Joshua, we, we saw the example of obedience bringing blessing. They went and, and as they obeyed God, what happened? God gave them victories. And in the beginning, he did it in very miraculous ways. Right? Just march around the city and God tears down the walls. Right? And then a little bit later, he says, okay, now I'm going to give you the strategy, and I want you to follow my strategy. And then it gets to a point where he, he says, all right, now just go do it. All right, just go do it. As they mature in their faith, but obedience brings blessing. What you do find at the end of the book of Joshua was that there was a point where they kind of gave up, and they thought, we've done good enough. We, we, we're okay. We don't really need to do any more. And then what comes next after the book of Joshua Judges, right? In the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, they start to disobey their God. They start to listen to their, their foreign neighbors. They start to bring their gods in. They start to worship their gods, including the gods of Molech and Baal, which was responsible for the death of their babies. I think of babies, they're so precious, right? And to them, they became nothing. They became an inconvenience. And they destroyed the babies. And, and, uh, and, and what happened? Enemies would come in. That's what the whole story of, of, of Judges is about. You see enemies coming in, taking them over. Then they repent. And then God restores them. He sends someone to protect them. And then they, they fall right back into the same cycle over and over and over again. That's the book of Judges. It's where, where Joshua teaches us that obedience brings blessings. Judges teaches us that disobedience brings curses. Reaffirms what God said in the beginning in Deuteronomy. Towards the end of the book of Judges, we find over half a dozen times these words. I, I, I put it once up on the screen here, Judges 17, 6, but we find this repeated over half a dozen times. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Subjective morality. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. By the way, that's, that's not going to promote a great society. Amen? 
We need less people living by what they think is right in their own eyes and more people living by an objective moral standard that God has placed. And so here, they have no king. By the way, who was supposed to be their king? God was supposed to be their king. The problem was that they had rejected their king. But then you come to the very next book in the, in the, in the Hebrew order of the scriptures. Uh, the very next book is the book of 1 Samuel. And what do you find in the beginning of 1 Samuel? We want a king, like the other nations. See, they thought the problem was that they had no king. The problem was that everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes instead of living by the objective standard of the Ten Commandments that they had agreed to live by. Does that make sense? And so they, they, that's why all the horrible things in the book of Judges was happening. And so you get to the era then of the monarchs uh, and, and in 1 Samuel because they, want, they wanted a king. And God says, that's not wise. I'll be your king. No, we want a human king like the other nations. And God says, okay, you're not going to like it. And he gives him Saul. And, and Saul messes up. And, and, and you, know, you know the story. It goes from Saul to, to David to Solomon. You had Saul who was into himself. You had David who was a man after God's own heart, but he still had failures. It doesn't replace God as king. David was a good king, but not as good as God, right? And then his son, uh, you know, Solomon, was a, had a divided heart, and that divided heart eventually divided the entire country. Right? So you have Israel, and you have Judah, and that's where you have the next section of the scripture, First and Second Kings. So you have the era of the divided kingdom. And uh, and so we read in First and Second Kings about the, the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. And it goes back and forth and tells a story. And it does so with this one motif. And this is what you find about every king. You find these words. And so-and-so, and you fill in the blank with the king. And so-and-so did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Or, and so-and-so did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And that's the motif that we find all throughout the First and Second Kings. To find out, how did they do in this obedience brings blessing, disobedience brings curses kind of thing. How did they do? And, and so when we look at the story in Israel, when we look at how Israel did, almost every king was evil. Right? There were a few exceptions, but most of the kings of Israel were, did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. If we believe what Deuteronomy says about the blessings and curses, what did that mean? What does that mean for Israel? What was going to happen? It meant that enemies were going to come in and they're going to take over the people of Israel. And, um, and that's, exactly what, you know, that's exactly what we find. Back then, 722 B.C., the Assyrians came in and took over the people of Israel. That was the, the kingdom to the north, 722 B.C. And then what we find is there were a few, few more good kings in Judah, not that many, still mostly evil. And then we have the Babylonian captivity in 586. I want, to, I want to read something that, uh, it's a prophet, uh, Jeremiah, something that he said right in those years that we're talking about right there. You don't have to turn there, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll bring it up. Jeremiah 25, 1 through 11. It says, the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying... From the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, this is the twenty-third year in which the word of the Lord has come to me. And I have spoken to you, rising early and, and speaking, but you have not listened. 
Saying, Prophets have been talking to you guys and you have not been listening. You have rejected God. You don't listen. Verse 4 says, And the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them. But you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear. They said, Repent now, everyone, of his evil way and of his evil doings and dwell in the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers forever and ever. Do not go after other gods and serve them and worship them and do not provoke me to anger with the works of your hands and I will not harm you. Yet you have not listened to me, says the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with your works of your hands to your own hurt. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, that's interesting because Nebuchadnezzar was, did not call himself a servant of Yahweh. He just didn't recognize it. But he was a pawn of Yahweh. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, and against these nations all around, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing, a perpetual uh, and perpetual desolations. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Wow, so there's a 70-year punishment. I find this interesting because when you do the math, you know how long they had rejected God? 490 years. 490 years they didn't keep the Sabbath. One day a week. 490 years. What's one-seventh of 490 years? 70 years. It's almost as if God is saying, you stole these Sabbaths from me. I'm taking them back. Right? You stole these from me. I'm taking these back. And that's what we find. Uh, That's where we are in, in in the history here. See, the, the Babylonian captivity takes place in three waves. You have in 605 B.C. where he takes the brightest and best. He goes in, just, and Nebuchadnezzar just goes in and takes the brightest and best. Just a few years later, in 597 B.C., he takes about 10,000 more because he thought, wow, these brightest and best are very bright and they're very good. So he goes in, takes about 10,000 more, and then in 586 B.C. comes the total takeover where they destroyed the city, they razed the temple, Raised the temple, R-A-Z-E-D, not raised the temple, R-A-I-S-E-D. They raised the temple, destroying the city, and carried everyone off, all the Jews, to Babylon there. The story of, of Daniel begins right after this original 605 B.C. They take the brightest and the best. With that, let's jump into Daniel chapter 1. All right, so turn to, with me to Daniel chapter 1. We're not going to get too far into it uh, today. I want to read the first four verses, and hopefully these four verses will make a lot more sense to us, understanding the historical context. We read this. Um, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. So all the things that, that, that belonged to the house of the God went to the house of his God in Babylon. Verse 3. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, 
the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles. These are people who could afford a decent education, right? Verse 4, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And one of them obviously was Daniel. And so here's Daniel living, and, he, and Daniel loved the Lord. He loved the Lord's word. He obeyed God's word, and yet his country rejected God. His country was being punished for a 70-year period of time, and Daniel's carried off. Why? Because he's there, right? Because he's good-looking, because he's smart. He's apt to understand things. He can learn language quickly. And they thought they could brainwash him to, so that they could use him for, for evil instead of for good. Does that make sense? That is the, the situation. Boy, when you connect this to the idea that we talked about at the beginning, how do you respond when you are doing what is right, but you're a part of a larger group that's doing what is wrong? And now you are suffering the consequences of this. And that leads us to what the, the basic message that we're going to see in the message of the book of Daniel. We're going to see two things in this book. We're going to see, number one, Daniel is a message of judgment. Daniel has a message of judgment. God is allowing the Jews to be in captivity because of their own disobedience. This is a side of God that sometimes we don't like to think about. We don't like to talk about it. But there is a God who is just. Amen? Amen. And he... he he rewards obedience with blessing, and he punishes disobedience with curses. This was part of, of the faithfulness of what God had promised them all the way back in Deuteronomy. This is, there is a message of judgment, but there's also a message of hope. There's a message of hope that God has not forgotten the faithful. I mean, you see God interacting with, with Daniel, with some of Daniel's peers as well, in very faithful ways. And God is is still faithful to his people. And it it begs us to ask the question, what happens when when God judges a people of which we are a part, even though we're not personally guilty? I think this is an important question for us to ask because when I look around in the U.S., just, just bringing it home, when I look around in the U.S., I would have to say we've rejected God. Is that fair to say? Or am I overstating the case there? I don't think so. Overall, when we look at our culture, now we're not Israel. We don't have the same promises as Israel. We don't. But we have the opportunity to bow down and worship the same God as Israel, right? And we're not doing that. And, and we've, re- we've rejected that. In fact, we kill over a million babies per year in the U.S. alone. Think about that. And you saw how God responded to Israel when they worshiped Molech and when they worshiped Baal. We might not call him Molech. We might not call him Baal. But we're worshiping the same God behind it all. Amen? You know, we, we allow graphic, perverted sex to be displayed everywhere in our culture. With, without shame. Right? I mean, people get offended if you pray in public. People get offended if you, if you pray before you go onto a football field. But yet they're not offended by Game of Thrones. Does that make any sense to anyone? It doesn't. It makes no sense whatsoever. 
uh, you know, the, our, the violence is increasing, theft is on the rise, marriages are dissolving, perversion is lifted up in praise. We live in a godless culture, right? That's where we're at. And the book of Daniel helps us understand how are we supposed to live in this godless culture? How can we live? And, 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 it, and we find two sources of hope that we're going to find. It, it, will we suffer? Are we going to suffer along with, with those around us because of, of what our country's doing? Yeah, yeah, we will. Yes, without a doubt. But has God abandoned you? No. Absolutely not. And so because of that, we're going to find sources in, 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 of hope in two things, and we'll close with this concept. Number one, we're going to see that God's judgment is corporal, but his blessing is individual. Corporal just means the whole body. So you have the whole body of, of, of Israel. You have the whole body of the Jews. Were the Jews being punished? Yes, they were. God's, God's judgment is corporal. However, his blessing is what? It's individual. Did God still bless Daniel? Well, we're going to see he does. Does God bless Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? He sure does. He, he blesses them in spite of all of the other things. God never abandons the individual, and, and, and we're going to find that as a source of comfort. Daniel 1 through 6, we're going to see that. That's going to be the basic message of Daniel 1 through 6, which is the narrative section of the book of Daniel. Starting in chapter 7, we get into the prophecies, and, and, and that's going to bring us to the second source of hope. Number 2, that we may be suffering right now. We may suffer right now because of the guilt of those around us, but the story is not over. The story is not over. And just to give you a taste of what I'm talking about here, um, let's read just four verses from one, uh, from one of these prophecies. Daniel in uh, chapter 7, if you've got your, your Bible still open, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel is just given this, <coughs> is just given this vision of four beasts that represent four nations. But look at verse 15, where, how he ends this. We read this. It says, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. And he just read about these, these four creatures, these four godless civilizations that were going to rise up, and they were going to cause persecution, and they were going to do horrible things, and that troubled him, right? <laughs> Verse 16. I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings, which arise out of the earth. And listen to this, verse 18. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Wow. First of all, I want to explain forever. The word forever, olam, in, in Hebrew, means in perpetuity. Uh, so it, when, when, the, when the word olam is used, it just means without any defined ending, ending to it. Then when you put forever twice, you say olam, volam, which is forever and forever. You put them together, that means not just in perpetuity, but for eternity. I mean, never ending. Right? Guaranteed, no end, forever and ever. And what does he say to us? He says, the saints of the Most High, in the context of all of these nations coming up and rising against us, right? In light of all of that, the saints of the Most High are going to possess the kingdom. And not just possess the kingdom, they're going to possess the kingdom forever and ever. Wow. Put, put that into your, into your mind. Think about that for a little while. 
I mean, imagine the confidence that we can have when our culture rejects us or even punishes us for our faith. I, I don't know to what degree that'll happen, but I can see that happening, and we've seen it all through history, even where they attempt to kill people for their faith, right? And, and we can see this, but we could look our enemies in the eye and know, unless you, unless you submit yourself to the God that you're persecuting right now, I am going to outlive you. One day, you will be experiencing eternal death for an eternity while I'm experiencing eternal life for an eternity. Kingdoms are going to come. Kingdoms are going to go. You and I have the opportunity to live forever. Wow. And this, written by the same man who had access to God because he knows history before it happens. That means something. Amen? That means something. What, what a, a confidence we could have. And to, to know that when we see our enemies, we actually can pity them. And they can persecute us. And when people persecute us, our natural response is to persecute them back, right? But if we understand things from biblical, divine, eternal perspective, we start to pity them. Because, yeah, they might have the advantage over us right now in this limited context. But we're going to outlive this context. We're going to live forever. We're gonna, a million years from now, we're just going to be getting started, right? While people are taking this earth and they're trying to build their own kingdoms right here, not a single stone, God says, is going to stay on top of another of any of the works of man. Kingdoms will come. Kingdoms will go. But the, the sons of the Most High God, the saints of the Most High, will live forever. Not just forever. Forever and ever and ever. Wow. That's going to change the way we see everything. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to getting into the book of Daniel. Anyone else looking forward to getting into the book of Daniel? I think we're going to learn. I think we're going to learn a ton. And, and uh, we're going to see how to live our faith in the fire. Our faith in the fire. Um, you know, I, I just want to close with this. If, if you don't mind me taking one more minute. I, in my personal devotions today, I was reading in Psalm 27. And uh, just spending a little time with the Lord. I wasn't planning on saying this, so it's not on the screen. But in Psalm 27... I was just spending some time with the Lord and praying. And this is, this is the psalm that came up. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. One thing have I desired of the Lord, yet one thing will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and to behold the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. David had that eternal perspective, did he not? Oh, the enemies are all around. But man, he could sit in the presence of God Almighty. They can't do that. The enemies can't do that. We can do that. Because we're saints of the Most High God. Let's close in word of prayer. Heavenly Father, again, I just thank you for your word. What an encouragement your word is to us, Lord. We, we see the world around us and the choices that people are making, and they make horrible choices, and the 
We understand the world's moving in the wrong direction, but Lord, I pray that you'd help us to live out our faith in the midst of the fire around us. As did Daniel, as did some of his peers, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Lord, I pray that that would be a reflection of us by the time we get through this book. And I pray this in your son's precious name.